0: Alright, hello everyone. I am so glad to run into you today along the way of Word and Wonder. This is our second episode, but it will be our first with a an actual scriptural conversation. The last episode, which was actually the first, was just kind of a bit of introduction, but today we'll hopefully get into some good Word and Wonder content. As I mentioned at the end of the uh, last time, I'm starting a series on learning to trust God, and I hope that my contribution to this topic will be encouraging and helpful. Um, But before we begin, we need to hold up a second to clarify our steps towards this topic. We can't learn to trust God until, first, we are able to see why God is trustworthy. But in order to see why God is trustworthy, first we need to experience that trustworthiness in action. In other words, we need an event that demonstrates God's trustworthiness. So that event is what we are going to be focusing on in today's episode. Our text is going to be in Exodus chapter 14, and you probably know that uh, text pretty well. But if you're not familiar with it, uh, I'll just give you a quick little uh, summary. About 500 years or so prior to this story, God made a covenant with a guy named Abram, promising that he would make that man's descendants into a special people through whom the world would be blessed. But during much of the time when those descendants were growing and multiplying, they were living in Egypt, first as refugees and then later as slaves. These descendants, known as the people of Israel or Jacob, they, they spent many generations in slavery in Egypt. But eventually, when the time was ripe, God performed several powerful acts of judgment to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. Led by a man that God appointed, whose name was Moses, these Israelite descendants gathered their stuff, they left Egypt, and began marching towards the Red Sea. And that is where we will jump into our text. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, um... And you're wanting to follow along, I am starting in Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 10. So, Exodus 14, verses 5 through 10. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people, and they said, What have we done, letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready, and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots, and all the other other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites, who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army, they overtook them, camped by the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. And in verse 10, it says that, As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Why did the Israelites have great fear? Because what they saw coming was all they had ever known. Now, I must clarify here that I am not a psychologist or a therapist. Having said that, I believe the thing about trauma is that it rewires our brains and our bodies. All of our memories of traumatic experiences and the reactive behaviors that those experiences generate are housed in our brains and our nervous systems in our muscles in our psychology they shape our personalities and habits and our perceptions for example if an adult or if if as a child an adult was hit or bullied just a few times or multiple times, I believe that the chances are that there is trauma there. The people of Israel were in an abusive environment for over 400 years. Their generations knew trauma, like the back of their slave master's hand. So when we read that the Israelites looked back and experienced great fear, these are the cries of a people whose bodies and nervous systems are conditioned to react in fear. It's like the stomping footsteps of a drunk or angry father. The thundering of Pharaoh's chariots triggers the minds of the Israelites as they cry out to God in panic. And if you look at some of the things that they say in verses 11 and 12, it kind of sounds like, uh, some of the things that abuse victims might say to prevent or avoid further abuse. Like in verse uh, verses 11 and 12, uh, they said to Moses, the Israelites, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, was it because that there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's like they were asking Moses or God why they had to go stirring up trouble and just couldn't leave well enough alone. This is the kind of terror and fear that keeps people prisoner, even after they've left the abusive environment. Israel knew what they were in for. They'd spent generations in this violent, oppressive environment. They knew Pharaoh, they knew the culture, and they knew that their only role in life was to toil for Egypt's glory because if they didn't, there would be pain and suffering. So that fear was beaten into their bodies and brains to orientate their minds and actions to comply with whatever Pharaoh demanded. And even though Israel had already left Egypt, because our bodies are aroused to react to whatever or whoever our fears are fixated on, even though Israel has already left Egypt, Pharaoh and his armies are still the dominating object of Israel's reality. That tyrant is all that they have ever known. He and his armies, and the lash of the whip, has loomed large in their imaginations and their nightmares. Their nervous system is still enslaved. So on this day, God reveals to them a new object of worship to revere and reorient their reality around. Not a traumatizing or enslaving one, but a liberating one. They are about to behold not a God who enslaves, but a God who saves. So in verse 13, Moses says to them, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. Like I said before, I'm not a, I am not a therapist, but I find in Moses' response here something uh, theologically therapeutic. First, Moses dispels their intense fear, telling them, do not be afraid. Second, Moses pauses their panic with a steadying instruction to stand firm. Third, Moses readies them for a new reality to fix their minds upon, telling them to see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. And finally, Moses resolves what triggered their trauma telling them that the dominating egyptians they've seen all their lives they shall never see again so moses's words here help capture how this event is about liberating israel completely not just physically from egypt but mentally, psychologically, emotionally, yes, spiritually. This salvation event is meant to save the whole person. And the only way, really, to save a people from the slave reality that has thus far defined them is to give them a whole new defining reality. So at this point... The story continues through Exodus 14, and it contains a lot of those details that you may have picked up from either your own understanding of the story, or, you know, sometimes movies kind of recreate this, or different references, but really, you know, the story goes that God opens the Red Sea with a breath from his nostrils, the people of Israel are able to walk through while the Egyptians are held back by God's fiery presence. And once Israel is safe on the other side, the Egyptians are allowed to pass through with their chariots. But once they're in the thick of it, God lets the waters roll back over them, drowning all of the Egyptians. And the climax of the story, in verses 30 through 31, says that, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This story began with Israel experiencing great fear because they saw the object of their slave reality charging down on them. But it ended with Israel seeing the corpses of their slave reality wash up on shore and a new reality born in the wake of God's salvation this salvation story ends here with the Israelites reverential fear and belief in the Lord and in our next episode we're going to explore a little bit more how this end how this event demonstrates God's trustworthiness but right now right here uh, there are a couple of things I believe that this text might be challenging us to consider probably not the only things but here's a few one is, Salvation was God's solution to Israel's slavery. Sometimes, in our anxieties or throes of trauma, we might wonder if this is all there is, if this is as good as it's going to get, or if God just, you know, set the universe in spin and walked away. Making us wonder, it's like, does God even care? This salvation story shows us that God is interested in you and invested in freeing you from what chains or traumas haunt you. Another uh, thing we can take away from this story is that God's salvation story is stronger than our traumatizing stories. Trauma affects the whole person, but one of trauma's lies is that it is the whole story, but it's not. And God's salvation can help us see that. Another thing is that God's salvation, it establishes a way to wholeness and healing. Sometimes one of the drawbacks about the way we talk about salvation, especially in churches and, you know, like, you know, believing in Jesus is that, you know, we kind of, I don't know, uh, wrap it up into one quick little uh, transaction. It's like, I believe now I'm saved. But what this Red Sea Salvation story helps us to see is that God's salvation is only just the beginning to a whole new way of perceiving God, knowing God, participating in God's purposes and community, and experiencing healing, restoration, joy, hope. So when I say that salvation is a way out of what enslaves, I mean more precisely that salvation is a whole way of living. And finally, in relation to this overall series that I'm trying to do on learning to trust God, God's salvation establishes a foundation for making knowing God and trusting God possible. So in our next episode, which I hope I can put out very soon, we are going to look more closely at how this salvation event demonstrates God's trustworthiness. I'm glad to have had this moment with you, and I look forward to hopefully encountering you again farther along the way of word in wonder.